listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 44. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favour in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have, uh, sorry, whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when they were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. He is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. And Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayers of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, 
Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the words of your servants. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of my lord whom you sent. Now then, my lord, as the lord lives and as your soul lives, because the lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my lord be given to the young men who follow my lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hands. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing of all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said... Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord's. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Mishael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Amen. This is God's word. Here at Trinity... Um, we're coming towards the end of a series of sermons on 1 Samuel. 
Uh, 1 Samuel is one of the books in the Old Testament that documents certain events of significance in the history of God's people. In particular, 1 Samuel tells us about how the nation of Israel became a nation governed for the first time by a king. Uh, That change in the nation's governance first came about because the people demanded a king. And in response, God gave them King Saul. That didn't go well. And we're supposed to see in that that it never goes well when we insist on our own way rather than trusting God's way. But in response to it, God graciously announced that he would remove Saul from the throne and replace him with a king chosen not by the people, but by God. God's king would be a man named David. Now, David isn't formally crowned king until 2 Samuel. And until then, as we discovered back in chapters 18 and 19, the outgoing king, King Saul, had made it the primary policy of his administration to put David to death. So from chapter 18 all the way to chapter 31 at the end of the book, David is on the run from Saul. Now, we're jumping ahead several chapters this afternoon. Our last sermon was on chapter 18, and this sermon is on chapter 25. And the reason for that is not that there is no material in chapters 19 to 24 that we can learn from, because there is plenty. But the reason is partly because we want to finish 1 Samuel before Christmas, and partly because in this section of 1 Samuel, uh, certain themes repeat themselves as Saul is hunting David. And several of these themes are summed up in our passage for today in this incident involving Nabal, Abigail, and David. Now, one of the themes you would have picked up on if you'd have carried on reading the chapters that follow chapter 18 uh, revolves around David's unwillingness to harm King Saul. Uh, despite the fact that Saul was seeking to harm David, David never responded to Saul's aggression with aggression of his own. In fact, David has shown incredible restraint when he had been faced with clear opportunity to end Saul's life and thus bring an end to the suffering that Saul was inflicting upon David. So in chapter 24, uh, there's a somewhat comical incident in which David and his men are hiding in a cave, which Saul then enters, not knowing that David's inside. And Saul enters in order to use the cave as a toilet. David and his men see all of this unfold from the back of the cave. And David's men whisper to him, here's your chance. Go and get him. But David refuses, and instead he quietly moves forward and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe so that when he then addressed Saul, as he did a few minutes later, he was able to demonstrate to him that whilst he clearly could have taken Saul's life there and then, he didn't. When David's oppressor was right there within reach of David's sword, David restrained himself and explained to Saul, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Chapter 26, David will do the same thing again as he comes across everybody in Saul's camp in a deep sleep one night to the point that he's able to make it all the way to Saul's tent and take Saul's spear from him. And yet he refrains from doing harm to his enemy. And in the middle of these two chapters, in which David demonstrates remarkable restraint, we're told in our passage in chapter 25 about another incident, not involving Saul this time, but involving a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. And this chapter is placed here for a reason. It reveals to us the secret or the source of David's remarkable restraint that he had demonstrated. It gives us insight into how it is that David is able to be so restrained. How it is that he is able to seek to do the right thing, even in the midst of significant suffering and even in relation to the one who is causing his suffering. And as it teaches us about David's restraint... It teaches us about the restraint that you and I need in our lives too, which we tend to realise 
when we face significant suffering or frustration and all we want to do is get ourselves out of that situation, whether or not it involves doing the right thing. So I want us to look at this passage, which is all about restraint, under three headings. Why we need it, where we find it, and how we get it. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on the first heading. Firstly then, why we need restraint. 1 Samuel 25 teaches us in the first place why David needed restraining. And the context for this is found in the first part of the chapter. Uh, The passage begins on a note of tragedy on two fronts. The first note of tragedy is found in the brief announcement that Samuel had died. It's hard to overstate the significance of Samuel for God's people during this era. He had been the ray of light in a time of darkness, living faithfully in line with God's law when others weren't. Uh, But more than that, Samuel was symbolic of God graciously choosing not to abandon his people, but to redeem and renew them. God had graciously raised up Samuel in order to speak through him and guide his people once again. But we're told in verse 1, this faithful servant had now passed away and the nation mourned their loss. But there's a second note of tragedy at the beginning of chapter 25. It's found in the introduction of a man who was in many respects the anti, the anti-Samuel. Samuel had been a man of integrity, a man who sought God's honour and the people's goods. But when this man is introduced in verse 2, we're simply told about his business, about his wealth, about his property, and about the fact that with it being sheep shearing season, he was about to get even wealthier. And it's significant that we find that out about the man before we even find out his name. Examine Samuel, and you'll find a man who is all about God and God's ways, But examine this man, and you find a man who is all about himself and his own riches. It turns out, though, as we discover in verse 3, that this man does have a name, and that it is a very apt name. Nabal, in Hebrew, means fool. According to the Bible, the fool, as David would later write in Psalm 14, says in his heart, there is no God. And here is Nabal, a fool by name, and a fool by nature, as he lives his life as though there is no God. Even his wife acknowledges as much in verse 25 when she tells David, For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. With such an introduction, it feels as though David's request of Nabal, which we're then told about in verses 4 to 8, never had any chance whatsoever of being favorably received. David and his men had been hiding from Saul in the same region as some of Nabal's shepherds who'd been keeping the sheep. And David, who'd grown up as a shepherd, had no doubt utilised his own shepherding expertise, and alongside his men, he'd been assisting Nabal's men in guarding and keeping Nabal's sheep. So much so that Nabal's property, his livestock, had not taken a single hit, and Nabal's men too had been cared for by David. And so David sends messengers to Nabal to ask for food and drink from him and his men in return for their efforts. Sure enough, the request is scoffed at in verses 10 and 11. Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Following that rejection, Nabal soon returned home to engage in scoffing of another kind and an evening feast. And yet, for all of the detail we're given about Nabal, This passage really isn't about him and his folly. 
It's all about David and how he is restrained from acting foolishly in response. David's messengers returned and they relayed Nabal's refusal to him, to which David replied in verse 13, Every man strap on his sword. Then, armed with 400 men, David set off with Nabal and his men in his sights, and his intention was clear. It's made even clearer in verse 21 and 22, where we read, Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one of the males of all who belong to him. Now, to understand the significance of David's intention here, we need to jump a little bit ahead to the speech which Nabal's wife, Abigail, gives to David as she goes to meet him and his men. At the end of her speech, in verse 31, she describes what David is about to go and do as shedding blood without cause. And that's exactly right. Had Nabal acted unjustly towards David and his men, had he demonstrated himself to be a foolish man and the opposite of an upright man? Yes, he had. But did that warrant David's intended response of putting to death Nabal and all his men? No. What David was on his way to do was, in Abigail's word, to shed blood without cause, to kill without warrant. And in her speech, Abigail shows that she is aware that David is the one whom God has anointed to be king. She knows that David is on his way to the throne and she wisely urges David to do nothing that would hinder him from faithfully serving as God's chosen king. So she says in verse 30, And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. For David to continue with his planned execution of Nabal and his men would mean that he would be haunted by that act of unrighteousness for the rest of his life, which is hardly something that needs to be endured by the Lord's anointed king. Abigail understands that. And yet there's more to the significance of David's intention that Abigail also understands. She recognises in verse 26 that the Lord has already restrained David from what she calls blood guilt, the wrongful shedding of another man's blood, and from saving, she says, with your own hand. Now, Abigail is being somewhat prophetic here. She's describing how David had been restrained in all of his dealings with Saul. In fact, in this passage, Nabal is supposed to remind us of Saul. Uh, there are several reasons why that is the case, but you only need to take a step back and look at the big picture. Saul had mistreated David. Nabal had mistreated David. David had only ever intended good to Saul, and yet Saul responded to David with evil. And here in chapter 25, the same is true between David and Nabal. And so when Abigail refers to the Lord restraining David from blood guilt and restraining him from saving with his own hand, she's describing exactly what has been the case as David had responded to David's persecution, uh, to Saul's persecution of him. As Saul had hounded David and had unjustly sought to put him to death, the Lord had kept David from acting out of line and responding by taking Saul's life, even though he had had opportunity to do so. And so he had kept David from taking matters into his own hands. And now Abigail urges the same upright dealings with Nabal, even though Nabal, like Saul, is a fool 
Abigail knew that it was not right for David to respond in the way he intended. And what David was intending to do was, as Abigail points out in verse 31, taking vengeance himself. And vengeance, God had made clear to his people, is something that belongs only to him. Why did David need restraining? Because, left to himself, David would have acted sinfully. Left to himself, he would have taken matters into his own hands, and in doing so, would only have heaped more misery upon himself by grieving his conscience. And he only would have heaped more misery upon his people by depriving them of an upright king with a clear conscience. David needed restraining because he did not possess within himself the authority to avenge those who had done him wrong, and nor did he possess within himself the wisdom to know how his attempt at vengeance would impact everybody involved. And so Abigail, the one who in this passage is wise, reminds David in verse 28 to remember that the Lord is fighting his battles. And in verse 29, she urges David to see, therefore, as she so beautifully puts it, that his life is bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. Therefore, she's saying, David, lay down your sword and know that the Lord will deal with your enemies. And all of this teaches us not only that David needed restraining in this way, But we're supposed to see that you and I need this same restraint. Uh, Isn't it true that when we suffer, when we experience frustrations or setbacks, we, like David, want to take matters into our own hands. Uh, When other people cause us harm, we want to be the ones to put them right and avenge the wrong they've done to us. It's often not enough for us to know that our lives, like David's, are in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord our God. We don't merely want to trust that God will care for us amidst our suffering and ensure that no ultimate harm will come our way. But we want to see that situations are resolved in our way and in our time. Now just think of the things you experience day in and day out that test your patience Think of how much anger can bubble up inside you and how frustrated you can get. In all these things, we need to hear Abigail's words of wisdom. We need to acknowledge our need for the Lord to restrain us so that we do not seek to save with our own hand, so that we do not take vengeance upon ourselves. We need restraint. Our sinful desires need restraining. And we need patience to wait for the Lord to make everything right. We need to take heed of the Abigail-esque wisdom that comes to us from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament when he writes in Romans 12, 16, Never be wise in your own sight. Never assume that you know more than you do when it comes to the course of your life and the lives of others. And whilst we leave vengeance to the Lord, as Paul goes on to urge us, We are to go about doing good. This is what David would later write in Psalm 37, quite possibly reflecting on this incident. In Psalm 37 verse 3, he wrote, Trust in the Lord and do good. We may not know what course our life and the lives of others needs to take, but we do know what is good. 
The Lord hasn't revealed to us how our lives will unfold, but he has revealed to us what is good. He has revealed to us how we are to conduct ourselves, what ought to characterise us, what laws we ought to live our lives by. And so even, or perhaps especially in the midst of the various trials we can face in this life, we need to trust in the Lord and do good. That's why we need restraining, just as David needed restraining. Yet this passage also teaches us, secondly, and more briefly, where we find such restraint. And there are two parts to the answer to this question. The answer to the question, where do we find such restraint? Where do we find the ability to restrain all of those chaotic desires of ours that bubble up and cause us to want to take our lives and the lives of others into our own hands? rather than wait patiently for the Lord. The first part to the answer is that we need God himself to restrain us. We need him to bring all of our disordered and out-of-ordered desires under restraint so that we avoid doing ourselves and others harm and so that we do what is good and right. Uh, In 1 Samuel 25, Abigail recognises that it is God who has restrained David from shedding innocent blood and taking matters into his own hands. She says in verse 26, the Lord has restrained you. And David as well, when he recognises the wisdom in Abigail's counsel, traces her wisdom back to God. Blessed be the Lord, he says, and blessed be you, Abigail, for as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left and able so much as one male. David, too, recognises that the restraint he needs ultimately comes from God. The restraint that you and I need, in the same way, is not something that we can achieve for ourselves. Our hearts are so disordered... Our desire to take matters into our own hands is so strong that we need God to restrain us. But there's a second part to the answer. Ultimately, we need God to restrain us. And yet what we also see in this passage is something of how God restrains us. For David, God restrained him by sending to him somebody who faithfully outlined for him what is taught in God's word. This is exactly what Abigail does throughout her speech. She repeatedly makes reference to the fact that the Lord is the living God, which is something that is repeatedly taught in the Bible. God is not like the static, stationary, powerless, handmade gods of other nations, but he is the living God, active in guiding the course of history and the course of our lives. She outlines the fact to David that the Lord is sovereign over his actions. He's in control of David's destiny and is sovereignly taking care of his life whilst ensuring that no enemy of his will escape the Lord's justice. It's an incredibly rich speech in which Abigail applies the truth of God's word to David's situation and through which the Lord restrains David. Where do we find the restraint we need? We find it as the truth of God's word is properly outlined and applied to our lives. God, in his kindness, sends to us faithful teachers of his word so that it might have this effect. And we ought to be grateful for such teachers. David expresses this in verse 32. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, 
who has sent you this day to meet me. And it's important that we recognize that these faithful teachers whom the Lord sends, these faithful servants of the Lord, they are not only ordained ministers in the church, because that is not the role that Abigail occupies in 1 Samuel. In fact, Abigail is significant here because she highlights for us the importance of godly women who know the word of God and who are able to skillfully apply the word of God to particular situations that others face. Abigail is held out to us in this chapter as someone who is faithful to the Lord and who is a blessing from the Lord. And in that, she reminds us that the book of 1 Samuel opened with a similarly godly woman named Hannah, who is likewise a blessing to God's people. It's perhaps especially important that we recognise the significance of godly, faithful women who love God and who know his word, because we in our church, in our particular Christian tradition, we believe that the Bible clearly teaches that there are particular things in the life of the church that are to be done only by men. In particular, only men are to be appointed as officers in the church. Only men are to serve as elders and as ministers. And only men are to preach and teach in church gatherings like this one. And the reason we believe that ought to be our practice is simply because we want all of our practice to be governed by what is taught in the Bible. Now, Many people in our day and age would hear a simple summary like the one that I've just outlined and they'd jump to the conclusion that churches and Christians in this particular tradition must therefore view women as in some way less significant than men, as in some way inferior to men. And, sadly, it is true that some churches and some Christians have and do act as though that is the case. But what passages like 1 Samuel 25 force us to do is to recognise that it is not the case. And to recognise that whilst it is outlined in the Bible that those who are appointed to positions of authority in the church are to be male, just as those in authority over God's people in Abigail's day were to be male, that in no way undermines the importance and the great value that faithful, godly women are to the church. And this is something that we encounter time and time again in the Bible. We see it in the Gospels as the Lord Jesus valued the company of godly women like Mary and Martha. We see it in Paul's letters as he refers to various women in various churches as faithful servants of the Lord. And as he highlights the significance of Timothy's godly mother and grandmother. And we see it throughout church history in the many examples of wise women who love the Lord and who know his word. And I often think that in my limited experience of church life, in the various churches I've been a part of, godly men have often been outnumbered by godly women. And whether or not though that is true, the church, we Christians, ought to make sure that we rightly value our godly sisters and mothers in the faith. Without Hannah and Abigail, the book of 1 Samuel is a much darker book. Without godly women in the church, the church too is a much darker place. And there is also a sense that these women ought to challenge as men. Hannah, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, 
deserved better leaders than she had in Eli and his sons. Abigail, in 1 Samuel 25, deserved a better husband than she had in Nabal. And so, brothers in the faith, let us not make life miserable for our sisters, the daughters of the Lord, by being for them ungodly husbands and church leaders. We need to wrap things up. And so very briefly, as we close, we need restraint because our desires, like David's, are not always right. And often we want to take things into our own hands rather than trust God. We are rightly restrained as we sit under God's word and allow it to govern our lives rather than allowing our own desires to guide us. And so thirdly then, how do we get it? How do we get this restraint? You know, it's not enough for us to simply learn the principles outlined in God's word. If we are going to be properly restrained in this life, if we're going to be able to trust the Lord and do good, we need to know and we need to constantly be brought back to the one who is at the centre of God's word. At the Bible, before it provides us with a law to live by, it presents us with a person God has anointed to save us from our sin and misery. That was David's role, in fact. He was anointed as king in order that he might save God's people from their sin and misery. Abigail knew that. But although Abigail was successful in persuading David not to take matters into his own hands, the chapter ends by revealing to us another defect with David. David already had a wife. You might remember he was married to Mishael, Saul's daughter, But in verse 39, after Nabal had died, David took Abigail as his wife. And in verse 43, we're told he took another lady, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and married her too. In this instance, God doesn't restrain David. And so David acts like Nabal. He acts like a fool. And he disregards the clear teaching of God's word that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And this choice of David's is a choice that will cause significant harm both to David and to God's people. As David's sons will later follow in his footsteps and take multiple wives. And in doing that, they not only disobey God, but they also hinder their ability to rule over God's people well. And this decision from David is in nature very similar to his intention to put to death Nabal and his men. So he's seeking to put Nabal and his men to death. David was seeking to take something that didn't belong to him. He was seeking to take life away when he had no right to do so. He was seeking to take his destiny into his own hands when it wasn't his to take. And here too, at the end of the chapter, he takes women as his wives when he has no right to. In doing that, what David does is he brings us to realise that David is not the king who will ultimately save God's people. David is a fallen human being in need of restraint just like us. And so he points us by way of contrast to the king whom God would ultimately send, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the Lord Jesus Christ's perfect life, through his death and resurrection, through his ascension into heaven, he has become the king who can save everybody who trusts in him. And who could deliver us from our sin and misery. 
David, whilst he sought to take things that didn't belong to him, the Lord Jesus gave up what did belong to him. And he laid aside his glory as the eternal son of God and he gave up his life. How do we get this restraint that we need so that we might avoid making the same errors David made and so that in the midst of all of life's difficulties we might trust God and do good? We receive it in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to faith in him, when we keep coming back to him in order that he might govern our lives through his words. And unlike with David, we have no need to be concerned that the Lord Jesus Christ might ever be unrestrained and foolish in his dealings with us. And so we can trust him and do good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognise this afternoon that given our disordered and sinful desires, we need your restraint. We do not know often how we are to proceed in matters and yet so often we want to take matters into our own hands and be wise in our own sight. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us our foolishness and help us come to the Lord Jesus to recognise his authority as king and to allow him to govern and restrain our lives. We pray that in his name. Amen. listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.